Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Hi, everybody. Um, this is my first time here in a long time. I've actually spoken here uh, a few times in the past. Um, Mike, don't feel bad about the confusion over Advent. I, 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 this is, I was given the assignment to speak about peace by Kevin, and uh, I could prove it to you if you want. Um, but um, peace isn't easy to come by. And uh, I've been dealing with chaos in my own heart, my own life, and, and there's been there's things this morning and trying to get things to, to come together. And um, and uh, this whole Advent thing is, is still fairly new to me uh, as a as a an Advent thing, you know, the thing of Advent. I don't know if there's anybody here that saw the article I wrote for the Spur e-newsletter, which is a ministry of One Way Ministries. Um, so not this past week, the week before, I, I did a Messianic Jew Looks at Advent. And uh, besides the fact that I didn't grow up with Advent because we we didn't do Christmas uh, growing up in, in our Jewish community in Montreal, both me and my wife, uh, but then the, the churches I was part of up until recently also didn't do Advent. It wasn't a thing. And... Uh, um, ten years ago, I got back into full-time ministry without giving you the whole story, and uh, I've been doing what's called itinerant ministry. Itinerant means wandering. That's what it often feels like. And so I've been speaking here, there, and wherever the Lord has opened the door, both here in Canada and elsewhere. Uh, and I've been doing writing and uh, and, and other things. And uh, over three years ago, a year before COVID. There should be a special term for that. Um, I was asked if I would uh, help a struggling Lutheran church in in Ottawa. And so I was half time interim pastor for about three years there. And it was my first introduction, not only to a Lutheran church, but to a more mainline church and more Christian traditions and, and, and so on. And so I had to learn about Advent. And so I did what Mike did, went online or people told me things and all the rest. And I thought, well, there's a way to do it and got these candles and there are these certain color and certain themes and they represent this. Then you find out, no, 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 different churches do it differently. And they have the different themes, uh, in different order. And, and as we say, coming from my own Jewish background, oi. You try to keep track of all that stuff, and so um, we're we're doing uh, peace today. And uh, oh, I'm on the wrong slide. I'm expecting all sorts of weird and wonderful things to. There we go. That's what's supposed to be there. Weird and wonderful things to uh, to happen, but the Lord is with us uh, as He is as He's promised, and that of course makes all the difference. And so I am here, God willing, to talk about the subject of peace. And uh, obviously, I've entitled this The Prince of Peace. I'm going to see what that's about in, in a minute. But I want to, just before I get into it, I want to bring to your attention that I do have a information and book table in, in the lobby. Uh, both Robin and I have written some books. And so you can see what's there and the prices are all there. I want to bring one particular one to your attention. And it's my wife's first illustrated children's book called Daniel's Dilemma. Uh, some of you might know our family, and we have a son by the name of Daniel, and this story came out of uh, something with him, and uh, he's kind of little Daniel's featured in the book. The, it's illustrated by Daniel's real-life wife, Alexandra. The beautiful illustrations. You can, check it, you can check that out. And it's dealing with how uh, 
how the mom deals with Daniel, who is so bored and learns uh, how to be a secret servant. So you can check that out as well as the other books there. If we run out of anything, we could arrange to have it delivered, the book delivered to your house in about a week at the same price. So uh, Robin's going to be at the book table after, and you can ask, ask her any questions, and she'll help you. Also, you can sign up for my newsletter. keeps you up to date with my ministry happenings as well as my weekly writings that I, I do a, a short commentary on the books of Moses. I've been doing that for the past 25 years. And I've passed over a year. I've also been doing a podcast on YouTube called Thinking Biblically. So you'll get notified when those things come out as, as they go. Um, okay, so we're, we're talking about Advent. And uh, as I mentioned, the whole concept is, is new to me, but I've been doing my research. And I, I, I came into it you know, while the churches I've been to didn't do Advent, people had Advent calendars. So, you know, what's Advent? Advent's about opening little doors on these things and ch- chocolate inside and all the rest. And I assumed that uh, Advent was all about getting ready for the birth of Jesus, getting ready for Christmas, so to speak. And, of course, that's true, but there's actually more to it and and, and has a lot to do with the uh, what Advent really means, which is arrival. And the arrival... Uh, in in Christian tradition has to do with the coming or the appearance or the arrival of Jesus and not simply when he was born as a baby. Scripturally speaking, the coming of the Messiah is one grand event, a grand event that the Jewish people thought was going to happen in theologically. I think it's the way we say it is wang, bang, boom. He was just going to come. He was going to bring in the new heavens, the new earth, the judgment, the resurrection, the whole thing, especially the thing that my people were looking forward to was that he was going to beat up the big bad Romans. That's what was expected. And as you know, if you've read the story, it didn't work out the way uh, the Jewish people, including Jesus' disciples, expected. Um, but he, he was going to do something greater than just beat up the big bad Romans. He came to not only um, break Caesar's sword, he came to break the power behind Caesar's sword. He wasn't going to just break the power of the oppressor. He was going to break the power of death itself that empowered the oppressor and that has been empowering oppressors from the beginning. Once the power of death is no longer a threat... Think of what we can do. I have a problem. I'm way better at the concepts and explaining the concepts than really getting them into my heart. I'm probably the only one, right? So maybe you could help me after. Um, I, I long to get these concepts deep, deep into my heart. But sometimes God helps me to be pretty good at explaining them. No wonder teachers get um, worse is it harsher judgment, however that verse goes? Um, I want to be careful not to make it sound that I've got a handle on this. The Lord has a handle on it, and our prayer is that he'd get a handle on us. We need that so desperately. So um, when Jesus came that in that first time, he came to break the power of death, which he did by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, and through that uh, was then able to pour out his Holy Spirit upon all those who trust in him, that we could be equipped to do God's work in our day. And so what he did was, in anticipation of when he will 
finally bring God's kingdom in its fullness upon his return, we're living in this kind of in-between time that somebody has called the now but not yet. By receiving the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we get to bring the power of heaven to earth through our lives today. Um, And so we are in this grand time of the Lord's arrival. We're still in this long process. I know it's been taking 2,000 years and counting, but that's God's business. And what a wonderful privilege to be part of God's process in our day in extending his messianic kingdom on this earth in anticipation of its fullness. I'd like to look at a familiar prophecy that refers to the theme that we're looking at, and it's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Remember, when you realize that it's correct to be thinking in terms of his advent, his arrival, as one grand complex event, we can see how the day we're living in is relevant to this to this passage, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me pray for a moment before we continue. Our Father, we thank you for what you've assigned your son to do. Lord, we need peace. We need it personally. We need it in our churches. We need it in our cities. We need it in our country and in the world. Your peace, the peace that your son has come to give. Help us to understand it better and help us to receive it more powerfully. We thank you in your son's name. Amen. And so we are looking at the subject of peace. And um, the, the term peace is comes from the Hebrew term, one of the most common Hebrew words, like known Hebrew words that we know. Is that a good way to say it? You, you get what I mean? Okay, the, the term shalom, shalom. Um, it's, as you know, it's, it's used for all sorts of things. We, when uh, Jesus rose from the dead and he, he greeted his disciples when they were in the, uh, locked away in the upper room, He greeted them with a a Hebrew greeting that has been used from before his time until today. Peace be unto you. Shalom Aleichem, he he said to them. Um, It's in the Hebrew scriptures. It's used 237 times. Um, The Greek term is Irene, Irene, where we get the English name Irene. um, And it's used 92 times. In the New Testament, so it's a very, very common term. The Greek term, Irene, like so many terms in the Greek New Testament, uh, is rooted in the Hebrew concepts in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And so it's, we're looking at the term shalom and we want to understand what it means. And so when we think of the term peace, uh, most commonly... We think in terms of serenity, 
being calm, no war, <clears throat> no chaos, no conflict, no problems. But actually, that's the result of peace as opposed to what peace really is. You know, when people talk about being at peace, they talk about lack of agitation, lack of conflicting thoughts. But, you know, that could actually be detachment. That thing that we think of peace is maybe simply the ability not to think about whatever it is. And I know we can overthink. That's me. And and our anxiety can come from overthinking and fretting. That's true. But some people seem to have the ability just to turn their problems off. Yeah, sure, there's a time to put a problem on the shelf. But sometimes it just stays there and rots. You know, putting things under the carpet. For some of us, we feel good about it. But that's not really what true peace is out. It's not really what it's all about. Um, And so what is peace from a biblical point of view? Getting that right? Okay, so a, a more biblical definition, and this might be a surprise to many people, it actually has to do, so the Hebrew word shalom really means wholeness or completeness. It's the opposite of being out of sorts. So the opposite of peace and I actually was trying to think of a title where I could use this sort of thing, but it, it's just too complicated. Uh, so the opposite of peace has to do in all the pieces. It's tempting, right? You know, pieces and peace, but never mind. So it's the opposite of peace is when all the pieces of your life are out of sorts. So when you're unhealthy, that means your body is not functioning in the proper balance that it should function um things are some things are working more than they should some things are working less than they should could very easily go into an illustration about the body in the church same sort of thing some things are overexpressed some things are underexpressed that's when we have a lack of health um balance biblically um, often we, you know, people talk, well, we need to have a balanced approach to our faith, balanced approach to the Bible, balanced approach to church life. And we t- tend to think of balance as kind of walking a tightrope and where you're kind of like, don't go too far this way. Don't go f- too far that way. Or you might fall. Be careful. Be careful. But that's not biblical balance. Biblical balance is more like a, a, a balanced scale where you have equal proportions on both sides, weighing the thing properly so the thing is balanced. So biblical balance, biblical health, is when everything is expressed to the proper extent that it should be expressed altogether. Then we have balance. It's not, don't, you know, don't be careful. You'll be careful going that way. Be careful. You can't live that way, that, 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 that tight wire approach. But what we can have with God's help is uh, healthiness, where completeness, wholeness. It's it's like a picture of a finely woven fabric. When a fabric is properly woven, all these threads, which in them of themselves are are fragile, when they're all together properly woven in the fabric, the fabric 
it can be very, very strong. And so a society has peace when this fabric of the society is well woven, when the threads are missing, when the threads are weak and broken, the fabric of society begins to become frayed, become, begins to fall apart. And that is a lack of peace. In modern Hebrew today, when you, when you uh, ask somebody how they are, uh, to a, a male you say, Mashlamcha, to a female you say, Mashlamech. Maybe you hear the shla in there. That's from Shalom. You're asking, saying, how's your peace? But, you know, do you have it together? Is, is really what's being expressed. And that's what biblical peace is really all about. You know, in, in the scriptures, when somebody says, go in peace, it's, it's a wish of, uh, may everything be okay as you go. That's really relevant. If you think about life in the first century, and in many centuries, in most parts of the world, going somewhere was always risky. Because you didn't know what might happen. There are all sorts of dangers, dangers from robbers, dangers from illness, danger from accident. We still have that, but we become so good in our society, in our culture, we become so good at all these safety devices as compared to most people for most of history. Um, So we're pretty good at Keeping our peace, you know, keeping it together, keeping safe. The wish is hardly necessary in our day until COVID. COVID's blown everything out of the water, whether real or 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 not. We've come to grips with the fact that we actually live in a very unsafe world, fraught with dangers. And we've been looking for things to protect us, to try to keep ourselves safe. And some of us won't even go anymore, whatever that going might entail, because we've become too afraid. We don't do all sorts of things that we used to do because we're now afraid. We don't have peace well, I'm so grateful that God's word was written in a time where life was so fragile. Life was so naturally dangerous. And so when we're called to go in scripture, uh, it was in a day where life was just dangerous. Everyone knew life was dangerous all the time. You didn't know if you're going to eat the next day for many people. Most people, most of history, you know, they when you talk about give us this day our daily bread. They meant it. They didn't have the cupboards and freezers and things that we have today. And one of our problems, I believe, with how we've handled this COVID era that we're in is we are so used to predictability and dependability and safety and and health and health devices and on and on it goes. We we were trust. We've been trusting in ourselves and our own devices as opposed to trusting in God and so the big question is, what is he calling us to do? What, is he, uh, what does he want from us? Knowing that we're serving the Prince of Peace who wants to use us to be his ambassadors of peace in a chaotic world. I want to look at a, a couple of uh, ex- interesting examples 
here uh, about the concept of peace uh, in the New Testament. Acts 10.34. We have Peter. He's preaching to Cornelius' household. You know the story here. Um, this, This is the early part in the book of Acts where some Jewish believers are doing this crazy thing of preaching the gospel to non-Jews. Can you believe that? Um, No, you're used to it now, but they weren't used to it back then. Um, And so it was really quite radical for Peter to take this step and God provided him with his vision to encourage him to do this. And so when he gets to Cornelius' house, we read this. Acts 10:34 to 36. So Peter opened his mouth and said, "Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. For the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all." And he goes on, "Good news of peace, good news of peace." Well, you could you could see somebody just doing a sermon, just good news of peace and talk about all sorts of wonderful things. But Peter was talking to a Roman military official. And the thing that the Romans were most proud of in their uh, a relationship to the world that they governed, one of the greatest empires of all time, was peace. That they had brought peace. They were so big into peace. Their version of it. Their version of it. They kept things under control and they were proud of it they believed that they had been called by the gods to extend this benevolence to the people that they governed and they made sure that things kept under control or else you got it good they were really good at that at least they thought they were they thought they were doing real good and so here's Peter, fisherman, who's had three years with who he thinks is the Messiah, and now he gets sent as an emissary to this Roman official. It's, if you think about it, how mind-blowing this would have been for this man to have this opportunity to talk to this Roman about the truth of God through the Messiah, Jesus. And he calls the gospel the good news of peace. To think what Cornelius must have been hearing, that there's a new king in town, and he has peace to bring, confronting the fake peace of the Romans, the ungodly peace of the Romans, the fleshly peace of the Romans, that was good at keeping control, but was not God's version of peace. The familiar passage, John fourteen seventeen, Jesus says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Now, we, we, many of us love a verse like this. And I mentioned at the beginning about how I can, I'm, I, I can explain the concepts, but really getting them in my heart. That's another story. And we look at a verse like this and we think about our own personal troubled lives. Those of us who are on the more anxious, neurotic side of the scale. We read verses like this and, oh God, 
Help me to be, help me to receive this to my heart. Let my heart not be troubled. Neither let me be afraid. Oh God, do this work in me. But again, think about the world into which these words were spoken. This was not a psychology session. This was not uh, the Lord at this is this time in the upper room. They had just celebrated Passover. These are some of his final words to his disciples. And he's not going around the room hugging them. They're there, Peter. They're there, John. It's going to be okay. Take some deep breaths. Let's sing a worship song. That's not what was going on. Nothing wrong with singing worship songs. Nothing wrong with giving one another a hug and saying it's going to be okay. But think about the context in which they were in, this small group of Jewish people oppressed by Rome, um, understanding that um, this is, was not ultimately God's will for them, that God wanted to release this oppression, wanted to come and, and refresh and renew his people and, and make them all that, that they were called to be, and and preparing them to, to go out and to proclaim uh, uh, the, that the Messiah had come and to proclaim to not only their own people, but to the whole world that there is only one true king and it's the God of Israel. This is what he was getting them ready for. And into this context, he talks about his peace that he gives to them. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. A peace. It, this is far more like a general speaking to his soldiers, preparing them for the mission that they're about to embark on. Now, there's an interesting passage here um, that uh, I call an interesting negative. Luke 12, verses 51 to 53. Jesus says, Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So first of all, with this, this is in direct conflict to the common Jewish notion, both in their day and still today in the Jewish world, those who still believe that a Messiah is coming, uh, that peace was going to be the great marker of the Messiah. That's the proof. And so if you're talking to a Jewish person, you tell them that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they're going to go, how could that be? There's no peace in the world still. There's still wars and so on. And so he contradicts that notion. You know, Jesus contradicts our notions. Have, have you noticed that? Have you noticed that he, like, affirmation isn't necessarily his middle name? And I'll get more into that in a second. So anyway, he says, so uh, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For, for from now on, in one house shall be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Well, what's that about? He's supposed to be the prince of peace. And he comes and says, I'm not, gonna bring, I'm not bringing peace. I'm bringing division. Why does he say this? Because his type of division is the pathway to peace. His bringing of division, is, it's not his fault. When he comes with his truth and his goodness and his healing and his power, He's not really causing the division. He is and he isn't. It's not his fault. 
The reason why the division happens is because of the mess we are. And some people are going to cooperate with him and his words, his teaching and so on, his leadership, and others won't. That's where the division comes from. The division is because of the mess that we're in and that we are not quick to allow him to clean up our messes. It's not his fault. He comes as the teacher. He comes as the judge. Jesus comes into our lives and he begins to differentiate between right and wrong. And it might contradict our understanding of right and wrong. You know, more and more in recent decades, the way Jesus presented to people, to non-believers, to share about him for the first time, it's sort of a, they're there, everything's okay, God really loves you, I know you didn't even believe in God until now, but he's, you know, he, he loves you like a, like, like a puppy. That's often how it's portrayed. I'm so glad when I first heard about uh, the Lord when I was just before 19, um, in 1976, um, I'm 65. I don't want to get distracted by doing the math. So uh, I'm so glad that the gospel wasn't preached to me that way. And a fellow teenager that I just met, a friend of a friend from California had come to Montreal where I grew up, and we started talking about the Lord. Um, I can point you to my whole testimony online if you're interested in it. Uh, but just this one factor, at some point, he basically tells me, I'm a sinner. Now, my life was a complete mess. I was having panic attacks. I was terrified of dying. My mother and I uh, were on welfare. My life was going nowhere. But I thought I was pretty good. And I'd come to the point where I didn't think I ever had to say I'm sorry to anybody again. And this guy dares to tell me that you're wrong, buddy. Now, he didn't do it with that attitude. But that's really what it comes down to. You're messed up. You're lost. God has come to correct that. He was telling me that I had to say I was sorry to God for my sins. I didn't even understand the concept of sin until that moment, really. I didn't know anything about much about God, the Bible, and Jesus. And he's telling me that I had to change course. I remember it was my first year as a believer. I was working... Um, in a large Jewish camp. It was quite an experience. I'd been doing that from before. I did that after for a few years as, as a believer. And I had opportunity to, um, to speak some of my fellow counselors about the Lord. Uh, nobody wanted to go along with it. Nobody wanted to believe. And, and the reaction on the part of a, a bunch of these people was to get very, very sad. I was only a believer at that point for not even a year and this dynamic was very strange to me. Like I'm trying, they asked me, I told them, that's how it came to pass. And, and um, they were kind of interested. They saw there was something with my life that was quite special, um, but they didn't want to submit to the truth of God. And some of them be, actually for a few days became dysfunctional in their work at the camp. So who got blamed for that? I did. Because I said some things to these people that made them feel really, really bad. And um, I remember a supervisor of mine making me feel bad for making these people feel bad. I remember, I've only been a believer for a year. And I remember I was uh, at home on a day off and, a, and I was taking a shower. You don't have to picture that. And um, um, 
you know what showers are like. Just picture yourself. And, uh, um, and I was really struggling with, with this. And then all of a sudden, I remember the story of the rich young ruler who asked the Lord, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the Lord told him what to do. And he didn't want to do it. And it says, and he went away sad. So said, oh, I get it. I get it. That's what happened. It's not my fault. This was their response. This was their response. The Lord wants, let me put it this way. We need the Lord to correct us. Until we're perfected, there's always something to correct. Now, I, I know we could focus on, on those things maybe more than we should. And, and we need to do a good job in encouraging people. Absolutely. But when we come before God, when I read the Bible, I try to read the Bible every day. I try to come with a heart that's correctable because I know I don't have it all right in terms of my understanding of scripture, in terms of how I'm living, how I'm relating to my uh to my wife and my kids and to other people. I want to be in a, in a posture where I'm receiving his correction. I know I need that. We're disciples, which is a fancy word for student. He's the teacher. We're the student. He instructs us. He corrects us. Read what he does with the disciples. Do we want that? Do we not want that? If we don't want that, that means we want to stay where we are. And actually, when we don't want to cooperate with the Lord, we're the ones that are causing Division. He is the restorer of all things, and he wants to bring transformational change to our lives. This is what I I want to end with. Blessed are the peacemakers. Oops, sorry. There we are. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. From the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. I believe a lot of us have heard this sort of thing before, but it's, it certainly bears repeating. This idea of peacemaking versus peacekeeping. Jesus says that ble- the ones who are blessed are the peacemakers. Um, it's... But some of us think that our role very often in life is to be peacekeepers. Don't let, you know, the person that don't, don't rock the boat, don't rock the boat. Keep it steady. Keep it steady. And there's a time and a place to keep the boat steady. But we are, we are not primarily called to keep the waters calm and keep everything under control. That's Roman. That's Roman. Keep things, keep it, keep the peace, keep it quiet. Don't let any uprisings happen. Don't have any radical opinions because that might lead to some movement like the Jesus movement. Keep it under wraps. Keep it calm. Now, I know this is not true for all the millions of Canadians, but this is core to Canadian identity. It's, it's far more complex than that. But there's, there's truth in like, and, and this idea, even militarily, like we're famous for being peacekeepers. Peacekeeping doesn't even really keep peace at all. It sort of just controls it until the chaos erupts again. Peacemaking requires confrontation of what is wrong. But not for its own sake. 
Peacemaking requires confrontation of what is wrong in order to restore things to what is right. We need peacemakers. God is calling us to be peacemakers, which means we have to break Canadian passivity that doesn't want to get involved, that doesn't want to cause trouble, that doesn't want to make some people sad because they're not going to listen. Avoidance of those things that God wants to change. Avoidance is an obstacle to peace. Oh, I don't want to get involved. Oh, that's their decision. Who am I to say anything? The worst kind of avoidance, because it's so basic, is when we avoid God's confrontation of ourselves. If I would have been offended by that young man that day, my life wouldn't be what it has become. I wouldn't even know the story. So many, oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. It's painful to deal with the junk in our lives. It's painful to deal with our sin. But what's the alternative? Do we want to stay in chaos? In the unnecessary pain? The wrong kind of division? Or do we want God to truly bring the peace that he wants to bring into our lives? So it has to start with ourselves. To allow ourselves to be confronted by God and then by others who are bringing God's word, God's truth to us. We are to be emissaries of the Prince of Peace. Could you imagine a community that wants wholeness, recognizing that it's our brothers and sisters that have the goods? Isn't that how it works? You have what I need. I have what you need. We're supposed to be a body. I mentioned at the beginning, health in the body, each part of the body doing its part to the extent that it's designed to bring. That's true in our physical bodies. That's true in our community body. We need the different parts Ministering to the other parts, giving and receiving, which means speaking up and saying the things that God's calling us to say into each other's lives, that we would know peace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again. We thank you that we're not alone. We thank you that we are children. If we know you through your son, we are children of the Prince of Peace. Father, we ask that you would come with that powerful peace. Speak to us. Grant us open hearts to receive your work of peace in our lives. And then enable us to be emissaries of peace to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much, Ellen. Really appreciate that. I'm going to invite you.